Hello, everyone. I'm Bobby Franklin, and welcome back to Venture Capital, a podcast brought to you by NVCA, where there's an O in capital, as in Capitol Hill, where NVCA advocates for policies that support the U.S. startup ecosystem. This episode focuses on climate and how the nation's startup ecosystem is advancing breakthrough climate technology to help make our planet healthier for generations to come. We are going to cover the climate issue from the policy perspective, hear from an entrepreneur who is making a real difference in making cities greener, and talk about the VC investment impact on climate solutions. We will also hear from Congressman Ro Khanna later in the show on his new book and his work to support American entrepreneurs and the VCs that back them. I'm joined now with one of our very own NVCA's Jonas Murphy. Jonas is our manager of government affairs and has a bunch of responsibility for many policy issues, but the one we want to focus on today is about climate. First of all, Jonas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bobby. It's great to be here and uh, look, look forward to the discussion. So, Jonas, you know, when I started at NVC back in 2013, a lot of people told me, look, you know, there's no investing in climate. It has gone to zero. But I think the data looks different in 2022. What, what can you tell us about the data on investment in climate? That's right. So 2020 was actually a record year for climate investment. We reached a record of $12.7 billion invested into U.S.-based climate tech startups. And 2021 was actually even more than doubled that record to $27 billion invested into U.S.-based uh, climate tech startups. So it's a significant increase in capital invested over the last couple of years. And given the importance of speed in getting, to the, the, getting the economy to carbon neutral, um, this wave of young companies is going to play a key role in the nation's efforts to address the climate crisis. So we're, we're optimistic. And we did what we normally do at NVCA is when there is an area of interest or investment, we, we tend to put together groups. So talk a little bit about our climate and sustainability working group. We formed this working group back in 2020, really to organize the venture ecosystem around the various climate programs that are coming online from both the bipartisan infrastructure law and potentially the Build Back Better Act, which is still uh, very much to be determined. We have about 40 members of the working group. They invest across, you know, really all climate verticals from, you know, carbon capture, energy storage, EV charging, hydrogen. Um, it's really a broad, a broad group that has, that brings a really diverse range of perspectives to the conversation and helps us identify critical issues that we can then advocate for uh, to policymakers. So it's, it's a, a really effective forum to both hear what's on the minds of, of climate investors and their portfolio companies that are doing the innovation and really pushing the boundaries and, and of what's achievable in, in these verticals. And it's also a way for us to, to, to let them know kind of what's going on in, in the policy landscape. You know, DC is a very, there's been a lot of action around the, these policy proposals in, in recent months. And so keeping them updated and also hearing what they're, they're concerned about is kind of the, the main purpose of the, the working group. Well, you know, it seems like you can't talk about energy without talking about energy tax credits. I think a lot of people are familiar with those. Talk a little bit about our work around energy tax credits. This is definitely a, a key area of concern for us, and we've been very supportive of extending and expanding the climate tax credits. We're also supportive of, essentially, it's a refundability mechanism for the, the climate tax credits. And so what this basically means is st startups that are pre-profit, they don't have profits 
that the credits can offset, they can take full advantage of the tax credits in the year that they're generated. And so essentially, this is a way to to generate liquidity for these startups, help them to gain access to funds that they can then put towards you know research and development, deploying projects, hiring people. And so that's really one of the potentially one of the most critical provisions within this is was included in the Build Back Better Act and it's potentially one of the most critical provisions to to help a broad range of climate tech startups. And so we're we're optimistic about about that. As I mentioned, the Build Back Better Act is uh, there's there's certainly some uncertainty around that around that. But if a deal does come together, we're optimistic that the climate tax credits and specifically the direct pay mechanism can make it into that to that package. We're also focused on the 45Q tax credit. And so this is essentially for carbon capture. Essentially, right now, the the minimum scale requirements that require companies to capture at least 25,000 tons of carbon per year in order to be eligible for the credit, really all but the, the largest companies can't qualify for that, that credit as it's, currently, as it's currently constituted. So once again, it's Washington that sort of is uh, making decisions, as they have in the past, that only a handful of really big incumbent companies then can take advantage of. And and we're in there trying to say, no, wait a minute, there are other companies that can do a lot of good. You just have to understand they may not be at the same scale, right? That's right. That's exactly right. And so that, that applies for both the direct pay mechanism and the 45Q credit. And so essentially, the goal of our, our advocacy around these issues is to help startups achieve parity with incumbent companies and be able to scale up and, and ultimately challenge the incumbents. We put together a memo that we, we provided to policymakers on, on the 45Q credit, kind of detailing our proposal here. And, and so we're optimistic that this as well, if a deal does come together around the Build Back Better Act, that we're optimistic that this can make it in, in addition to the direct pay mechanism. Now, I know I come from Arkansas. We're a predominantly agriculture state. Aren't there some provisions around agriculture? There are. One provision that we're particularly excited about, and this is actually, it's not included in the Build Back Better Act, but it's something that we've been advocating for. It's called the Growing Climate Solutions Act. And so essentially this would help farmers, help the agriculture sector to gain access to to carbon credits. And so it essentially establishes some new standards around the carbon credit markets, helps to define help solve for a lot of the technical issues that currently exist in, in carbon credits and and would go a long way towards helping farmers and, and agriculture, the industry writ large, to gain access to carbon credits. Well, Jonas, you've just said several things about Build Back Better, and I, I want to kind of put this in context for everybody. The Build Back Better, as it was making its way through the congressional process last year, and then it got put on hold before the holidays. And the question is, does it get on life support and does it make it again? There are tons of things in there. There are tax provisions we hate and we've been lobbying against it. There are things we like, like the I, several items you mentioned around climate. Some of them are in there, some of them are not in there. I think the the last I heard, and maybe you can clarify this, but the last I heard, Senator Manchin, who most people know is a big player here, he has some ideas about what could potentially go forward. And and it seems as though some of his ideas are around climate. So the fact that it's still in play and the fact that he's a key player and that he has, has talked about this still holds hope that some of the positive things that we like in Build Back Better could potentially happen. Is that correct? Senator Manchin is definitely... He's definitely focused on the climate tax credits among all of the provisions in Build Back Better Act. He's focused on the climate tax credits. He's focused on programs to help workers that are in these old 
traditional uh, fossil fuel industries like coal, like natural gas, transition to these the new uh, energy economy that's going to be it's going to be rolling out over the next over the next several decades. And so, really, if, if there is a deal that does come together, we think that it's going to inc- they're going to be focused around climate. It's going to include. We're hopeful that, it, as, as I mentioned, hopeful that it includes the direct pay mechanism and the 45Q re- revisions. But um, it's still very much up in the air. There, there's still obviously a lot of concerns around inflation and, and sort of broader trends that are affecting the, the prospects for this. So that's Build Back Better, but there's already been a bill that has passed, right? So we've, the bipartisan infrastructure package happened earlier, and there are provisions in there. So can you talk about climate provisions in a bill that has already become law? I think that there's there's really a lot of exciting provisions in the bipartisan infrastructure law that don't get a ton of a ton of attention. And so we've been closely engaged with the Department of Energy on the implementation of these various programs. The Loan Programs Office um, has certainly been a key partner for us in this process. Um, and so we've held several roundtable discussions with with leaders from the Department of Energy around EV charging, hydrogen, carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration. We're discussing a roundtable on geothermal potentially. And so there's a number of programs here that are really interesting and could potentially help a lot of startups in these verticals to to scale up. So, for example, um, with respect to EV charging, there's a a provision that essentially is going to create 500,000 EV charging stations along the federal highway system, which will really help to increase adoption of electric vehicles. Within carbon capture, there's a number of programs to support research and demonstration programs. There's essentially provision that creates these direct air capture hubs, which are these sort of centralized locations to conduct demonstration projects with respect to direct air capture. So that's really that's really the goal, I think, of a lot of these programs to to help startups scale up and ultimately cross the bridge to to bankability, so to speak, to bridge the gap between kind of an early stage startup that's receiving venture funding and and doing these you know, research and development, early stage activities, and sort of later stage startup that's actively deploying these technologies and requires a lot of capital to do so. These programs are really intended to to help bridge that gap. And that's already become law. And the the person at DOE that that you reference is Jigger Shaw, who's head of DOE's loan programs office. Well, that, that bill's happened. What about our comments and positioning around hydrogen? Yeah, so this is actually this is a really interesting area as well. So as I mentioned, we, we hosted a roundtable on hydrogen programs. It was actually our first roundtable back in January. It was a great discussion. We had um, a number of, of portfolio company CEOs join, uh, as well as staff from DOE's hydrogen fuel cell technologies office. Sort of coming out of this, there was a, a DOE issued a request for information, which is essentially a part of the regulatory process where companies can provide formal written comments on to encourage effective implementation of various programs. In this case, it was around uh, clean hydrogen manufacturing, recycling, and electrolysis programs. And so NVCA, we, we drafted a response to, to this RFI, kind of representing a broader industry perspective, representing the hydrogen startups that, that participated in that, that roundtable, as well as other, other working group members. So essentially, we built on the comments, that the feedback that was provided during the roundtable to ensure that startups have access to these programs and they're not inadvertently left out of, of the process. Oftentimes, during the, the implementation phase is where startups can inadvertently be excluded from accessing the funds based on you know a small provision, some, some language that doesn't directly intend to exclude startups, but can do so inadvertently. And so we're, we're very focused on making sure that startups do have access and can take full advantage of these programs. 
Jonas, thanks so much for walking through all those individual pieces. I guess stepping up at maybe a 30,000-foot level, like how do you think about the venture industry and the entrepreneurs as, as part of this climate debate as we go about advocating for the right policies as you've laid out? So what we're really trying to do is to to help the startup ecosystem gain access to these key programs and, and really emphasize that a lot of the, the, the cutting edge innovation and the technologies that are going to be necessary for solving the climate crisis are coming out of the startup ecosystem. It's not really the incumbent companies that are, are, are pushing the boundaries and, and coming up with these new technologies that are having an outsized impact. And so um, it's, it's really important that that startups aren't left out of the process and can can access these programs. And there's certainly no silver bullet solution. It's going to require an all the above approach. You know, we're going to need carbon capture, EV charging, as I mentioned, energy storage, hydrogen, all of these things are going to be a key part of helping the United States meet our emissions reduction goals. And ultimately, we have a target for our economy to be carbon neutral by 2050. Well, it's a good thing that the entrepreneurs and their investors have you here in Washington looking after their best interest. Jonas Murphy, Manager of Government Affairs for NVCA, thank you for joining us today on Venture Capital. Thanks, Bobby. Really enjoyed the discussion and uh, appreciate it. Thank you. My next guest is the founder and CEO of Block Power, a Brooklyn-based climate technology company rapidly turning American cities greener. Please welcome Danelle Baird. Thanks for being on the show, Danelle. Thanks for having me, Bobby. I'm super excited to be here. Well, you know, Danelle is here partly to tell us about his company, but also so we can bring our listeners a little information about one of our award winners. Danelle and Block Power have won the NVCA 2022 Startup Innovator Award. Tell our listeners, what does Block Power do? Well, we're delighted on behalf of me and my team at Block Power, we're, we're just so excited about this award and about joining the, joining the community in a new and different way. Block Power turns buildings into Teslas. What do we mean by that? Just like Tesla and Rivian and the whole EV industry have taken the fossil fuel combustion engine out of the automobile and replaced it with an all-electric green engine, we can, we can now do the same thing for buildings across America and across the world. Buildings burn oil, they burn gas for heating, for cooking, to produce hot water, to produce air conditioning. And you can remove all of that fossil fuel equipment from buildings and replace it with awesome, uh, cutting-edge, all-electric equipment. And you can use electricity created by solar, wind, hydroelectric power to power that all-electric equipment. And so you can, you can make buildings all-electric and green. And awesome, just like Tesla, just like Rivian. So I got to ask you, how did you come up with the idea to form a company to do this? My best friend in college was a lifelong climate activist. I mean, I think she'd been focused on prioritizing climate change since she was like 10 or 11. And so in college, she like forced me to take a couple classes on the science of climate change, and then I believe the science, and I became a climate activist and advocate as well. But before that, I'd grown up pretty low income in Brooklyn and then in Atlanta. And in Brooklyn, it can get pretty cold during the winters, and we did not have a working heating system in our apartment building growing up. Neither did any of our neighbors. And so when it got really cold in the winter in Brooklyn, 
we would heat our apartment with the oven. We would turn on the gas oven, we would open up the oven door and open up the windows to release the carbon monoxide and heat our apartment that way. So fast forward years later, I graduated from college, decided to become a community organizer, moved back to Brooklyn, to Brownsville, which is the poorest neighborhood in New York City. It's where Mike Tyson's from. It's where he grew up. It's one of the worst neighborhoods in America. High rates of gun violence, high rates of HIV, high rates of childhood homelessness and domestic violence. Terrible neighborhood. And I was a community organizer there. And I remember it was 20 degrees outside. And I was walking around looking at the giant 17, 18, 19-story public housing complexes where thousands of low-income families live in these giant apartment complexes. And it was 20 degrees outside and all the windows were open. And I said, ah, I know what that is. And it occurred to me that in New York City, there's 3,000 public housing buildings. And so if you have thousands and thousands of New York City buildings that are burning oil all winter long to produce a bunch of heat that's then floating out the window, that it had to be on the order of three, four, five hundred million dollars a year of money that was being spent on fossil fuels, burned and then wasted because the windows were open. And so I thought that we could basically train and hire the young families that lived inside those public housing complexes to green those buildings and make them more energy efficient and make them healthier and smarter and upgrade them. And that, that's where Block Power comes from. I mean, it's been 12, 13 years of thinking about this problem and searching for different kinds of solutions to um, execute on it. And we landed on building out the Block Power platform as a way of uh, scaling this idea up. That's awesome. So, Donnell, talk to me about the impact on the planet. I mean, you're a climate company. You're talking about taking out fossil fuels. You're talking about electrifying or making a building like a Tesla. Talk to me about kind of the impact there, how it does reduce the fossil fuels, or even some of the data that you're looking at and, and how you're going about this. Buildings contribute 30% of carbon emissions from the United States and 20% of all greenhouse gas emissions from the United States. So there is no path to addressing climate change without figuring out how do you green and electrify existing buildings across America. That's the case in America, and that's the case across the world. So globally, there's just no path to reaching any of the climate goals that we have unless you find a way to go building to building and green those buildings and electrify those buildings and move them off of fossil fuels. As a matter of fact, Bobby, if you had every American family decide to buy an electric vehicle, let's say Jeff Bezos is right and we get a Rivian for every American or a Tesla or a GM and what they're doing, they're doing amazing stuff. You get, a, you get an electric Ford Mustang for every American family, you still aren't going to reduce as much greenhouse gas emissions as if you turned every American home all electric. So the building sector is bigger than the transportation sector in terms of climate impact. And we're making a lot of progress in electric vehicles, and everybody's super excited about it. We need to start generating the same impact in the building sector. Now, from a venture capital perspective, what we have is a massive, important, lucrative market where there's very little software, there's very little competition, there's a lot of white space. And so how can you build out a technology platform that's going to help you grab it? Um, so we're really grateful to Jeff Bezos. He gave us 
a big grant to build out an open source model of 125 million buildings across America where we're building a digital twin of all the buildings and we're simulating the fossil fuel energy consumption and fossil fuel waste and greenhouse gas emissions of all 125 million buildings. We're assigning a sustainability score and more importantly, we're providing a building decarbonization and electrification plan to 125 million American buildings. And so buildings in America are going to be able to search for their address in our, in our search bar, in our app, and they'll get a free decarbonization plan that they can print out or have it on their mobile phone and walk it over to their local certified green construction contractor and begin decarbonizing their home. And then we have put together $100 million from Goldman Sachs and Microsoft that will allow us to finance those green construction projects for folks who don't have the cash just laying around. The last part that I'd say that we're super excited about is this software model now allows us to take what we do in one building and expand it to a whole city full of buildings. And so if you build a digital model of all the buildings in America, and we do have the hardware and software to electrify one building. Well, if you can do one building, you can do 10 buildings. And if you can do 10 buildings, you can do all the buildings in a city. And that's exactly what we're doing. So we won a contract from Ithaca, New York, where Cornell is located, to decarbonize all 6,000 of their buildings in the city of Ithaca in the next seven, seven and a half years. And we're very excited to partner with them to be the first city in the world to electrify all of their buildings. I want to say like every 50th building, we're going to put in an electric vehicle charging station. And so we're going to green all the buildings and green all the cars in the city and really demonstrate to the world that you can decarbonize a whole city. And so we're looking for other cities to demonstrate and partner and actually put together a little bit of a race, Bobby, you know, get people's juices flowing, competitive juices. And so we're talking to San Jose and Menlo Park and Cambridge, Massachusetts and Savannah, Georgia, actually, about joining a little bit of a, a race to see who can decarbonize all their buildings first. And so hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have a cohort of 10 to 20 American cities that are racing to fully decarbonize all of their buildings by 2030. This is so impressive, and it's no wonder that Time Magazine named Bach Power one of the 100 most influential companies. You're working on climate issues. You're working on issues to help bring up neighborhoods that, that need help. I saw an article said, you want to hire a 1,000 George Floyds. Talk to me about that aspect of pulling people up, giving them a job to do the great work you're doing. So I was community organizing when I was 22, 23, 24 years old in Brownsville, this terrible neighborhood. And the issue that kept coming up was jobs. And even when you talk to people who were dealing drugs in the local drug gangs, they'd say, hey, man, if you can get me a job as a janitor and you'll pay me $30,000, I'll go clean the toilets, I'll stop dealing drugs right now. And I couldn't believe it. I was surprised, even though I'd grown up in a community like that, Dealing drugs, it turns out, is pretty violent, and you actually only get paid minimum wage until you like rise up in the ranks. Um, there's this book, uh, Gang Leader for a Day, where an economist actually joins a drug gang for a while and kind of goes through the books, and you actually don't make a lot of money. So it's super dangerous, right? 
It's violent. You're not paid very well. It's like not a great job until you like move up in the ranks and then you got rival drug dealers trying to kill you. Plus it's like horrible because you're selling poison to people. So that doesn't feel good. And so these guys who were in the neighborhood gangs would come to me and say, look, if you can get me a job, you know, cleaning toilets, we will quit this drug gang right now and go clean toilets. So the question became for me, what does it look like to implement that? Now, it's taken me like 10 years to figure out how to do it, but we did win a contract for $177 million from the city of New York to train and hire 1,500 young people from New York City's most violent communities. Brownsville's one. The South Bronx is another. Jamaica, Queens is a third. East Harlem is a fourth. And the district attorney and the NYPD has identified people who are likely to be involved in a future incidence of violent crime. It turns out that violent crime is actually like a sociological epidemic. If you're involved in one incident of violent crime, you're highly likely to be involved in a future incident of violent crime. You're like more likely to buy a gun to protect yourself. You may want vengeance from what you witnessed or survived in the first incident of violent crime. So, so there's a crime wave going across New York and going across America. And so the White House and the mayor got together and said, hey, what if we hired you know, a thousand of these folks who are likely to be involved in a future incident of violent crime? Who do we know that's crazy enough to take on this contract? And so they call it block power. And <laughs> we, we said, we'll do it, but we're a climate company. Every single one of those jobs is going to have to be a climate tech job. And they agreed. And so what we do is we train all of these folks from these vulnerable communities on how to do augmented reality-based construction. How do we electrify buildings, rip out the fossil fuel equipment, which is actually pretty complicated in real life. Sometimes you, you're in a 100-year-old brownstone in New York City, you run into asbestos, you run into lead, you run into mold and other hazardous materials. Now you got to be trained and certified to remove those dangerous materials and demolish and put them in proper places. Anytime you're decommissioning an, a, a fossil fuel oil tank or a gas system, like that has to be cleaned and remediated. And then you got to have an awareness of electrician certifications to run new wires, to upgrade the electrical wiring. If you're going to electrify a 50-year-old building or a 100-year-old building by moving it from fossil fuels to heat pumps and rooftop solar, there's a lot of electrical work. There's a little bit of plumbing work. There's carpentry. There's demolition. And we think that the smart way to do construction is using software and mobile and cloud as a way of project managing the project. And we want all of our workers to be trained on the cutting edge stuff, right? And so we are training several hundred workers right now. And six months from now, we'll have a 1,500-person workforce that will be electrifying buildings across New York City. And so hopefully, we'll be able to work on thousands and thousands of buildings across the city, save people money, make the buildings healthier, greener, and smarter, stabilize the crime rate, but also introduce these young families into jobs that can pay them 50 grand, 70 grand, 100 grand a year, that can give them a full-blown career. We're talking with Goldman Sachs about creating a little working capital pool so that we can invest in some of the folks that want to start up their own green construction business and really start to build wealth for themselves and their family. So we're very proud of this program. 
it's a giant, ambitious, crazy project, but we are hopeful that not only has it been successful over the last six months, but we're actually in negotiations with several other states around the country that want to duplicate the program in their community. So District of Columbia, Bobby, where you are, New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, Georgia, there's other states that we're in conversations with to duplicate this program. That's amazing. Danelle Baird, founder and CEO of Block Power, making cities greener, helping those communities in so many ways. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the NVCA 2022 Startup Innovator Award. We are so delighted to be the recipient of this and the venture community has really embraced us and we've learned a ton and we're super excited to be with you. We are also featuring something new in the next few episodes of Venture Capital. Every year, NVCA celebrates the venture industry and honors those who have made significant contributions to foster innovation, advance technology, and drive new company formation. Earlier this month, we handed out the 2022 VC Awards, and we want you to get to know some of these award winners. My next guest is the 2022 NVCA Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Arthur Patterson. Arthur co-founded Excel in 1983. As an investor, he has helped management teams develop companies into market-defining leaders for over four decades. And as a leader, he has mentored countless investors to get them on the right track to have successful careers in venture capital. Welcome, Arthur. Thanks a lot for uh, having me, by. This is a real honor. This is I think my first podcast, and I have zero Twitter followers, so uh, uh, look forward to the conversation. So, Arthur, let me ask you a couple of questions. First of all, what inspired you to become a venture capitalist to begin with? Bobby, that's a great question, and I ask myself that many times because in uh, 1970, venture capital wasn't a business certainly wasn't a profession to aspire to. I had a brother who was a lawyer in New York, and he said, after leaving the government, he said, why don't you get a real job and and join Lehman Brothers? So I'd like to say that it it was because I looked out and could foresee, you know, the two to three orders of magnitude expansion of the business, but that's not really the case. I had had an uncle who'd done some deals uh, during the 60s out of a investment firm. And he seemed to have a much better and more interesting life than my father, who was a successful executive in a big financial corporation. And so I went with that and uh, make matters worse. I joined, uh, I took a 30% cut in my government salary to join the SBIC that uh, Citicorp had set up. And uh, the only reason they'd set it up is because the regulations had changed. And the other two SBICs that J.P. Morgan and Chase both dropped out of the business by 74. <laughs> and they were, the numbers certainly told them to do that. So it actually comes down to just a plain lucky choice. Well, we know you have mentored many people in the VC universe. What is some of the best advice or guidance you have given them? Well, those of you who have uh, children know the challenges of giving advice to children about the most simple of values. And, uh, you know, the simpler a subject is, the harder it is to give advice. If you have a complicated technical thing, you can give all sorts of help and advice. But uh, venture capital is just so quintessentially simple that it's hard to not 
sound like you're talking about uh, apple pie when you're talking about venture business, but initiative and luck play an, an extreme visible role, obviously, in venture capital. So it's it's very hard to convey to people and get them to commit to what we think are the decisive factors, that is the patience and persistence and professionalism, which over long periods of time really will make a difference and are really hard to do on a consistent basis. So, you know, I think my, my partners would say that if you ask them, you know, well, what, were, what were my characteristics that work for me, I think they might single out common sense. And my partner, Jim Schwartz, fortunately also was very well endowed with that. And, uh, you know, we've been extremely fortunate to be in a business of extreme expansion. So if you weren't successful, it was probably because you did it to yourself. Arthur, what's your proudest professional accomplishment? Well, Bobby, I could point to building the firm and creating a set of values there that has allowed it to maintain its reputation for quality over generational changes. But uh, my, my greatest personal satisfaction always came from the contributions that as an early stage investor, at least, you're, I've been able to make to quite a few companies over the uh, period. And uh, I may have had more than my share of, of restarts than most people, <laughs> maybe from too many at-bats. But when companies get into difficulties, and given the human conditions, that happens to an awful lot of them. Some of them are such a good idea, and everything's so, so lined up, and the external factors are so positive. You just leave them alone, and you better not tamper with them. But all too often, and really in a pretty high percentage of cases, Companies uh, do face challenges, and at, and at those moments, as the venture guy and a board member and financier, you you really have a tremendous contribution to be to make to those companies at those key moments. And and I've uh, been in many scary restarts and <laughs> and uh, potential end of life experiences that uh, I've made some contributions that have allowed teams to go on to really great successes and. And that was what I got the most satisfaction out of. Well, as I mentioned, as I introduced you, you've been doing this for a few years. So maybe you could talk about how the VC industry has changed since you started in it. Today, there are about 10 different specialist layers of funders for companies. And you need to be able, as you operate in the business, leverage those layers, both in terms of, of deal generation and getting your deals financed. And so it takes some deft work. You used to be able to do these companies with one other partner and, and have that process. I really miss the uh, satisfaction you got out of the close personal relationships you used to be able to have with a co-investor and developing these companies through thick and thin. And that's um, a lot harder today uh, for a variety of reasons, but all to the good. It's hard to complain. Are there any additional changes that you would like to see in our industry? You know, we talk about a lot about inequality these days. And to me, the solutions to inequality are to increase the pie, not to just go dividing up what's already been created. And I think the treatment of options for employees is really unfair. These guys take as much risk as the early founders who receive uh, shares. And yet their option treatment, you know, they're giving up uh, maybe as much as uh, 60% and the timing's really bad for their contributions to the companies. And uh, it would broaden the base of winners in these companies if their option treatment were just the same as the founders. Now, I'm sure Congress may 
in their wisdom think that the founders are the ones whose treatment needs to be changed. But I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, you try to make the pie bigger and everybody wins. Sounds like we're going to have to get you back into D.C. to talk to policymakers about some of these ideas, but we'll talk about that another time. Arthur, we've recognized you as the Lifetime Achievement Award winner. What do you think your legacy in V.C. will be? Well, legacy sounds very grand and I think a bit presumptuous. You know, some people establish museums for themselves. But, you know, I'd be happy if our firm just maintains its reputation for quality and continues to provide uh, great opportunities for careers, both for the people in the company and for uh, in the firm and for the companies that we back. I mean, that's the enormous contribution of venture capital over this period of time. We account for the dynamism of the whole economy now and produce millions of jobs that wouldn't be there. So if we keep doing that, that'd be all I'd like to see happen. And lastly, Arthur, how does it feel to receive the NVCA Lifetime Achievement Award? Well, I'm very glad to not get it posthumously. <laughs> but but I'm you know honored and humbled to be considered part of the group of guys, almost all of whom I knew pretty well, that you've given this award to in the past. So these are very illustrious ranks. I just hope it does, this doesn't mark the end of my career. <laughs> well, I'm sure it won't. Arthur Patterson, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations again on receiving the 2022 NVCA Lifetime Achievement Award. My pleasure. Thank you, Bobby. I am so pleased and honored to have Congressman Ro Khanna join us today on Venture Capital. Congressman Khanna represents the California 17th Congressional District, the heart of Silicon Valley. He's serving his third term. He serves on the committees of agriculture, armed services, as well as oversight and reform. He's done an amazing amount of work in a short period of time. Congressman Khanna, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm honored to be on. It's uh, great to be on NBCA's podcast. I've uh, enjoyed working with so many of your members. Well, thank you for that. You know, when I was thinking about this conversation, I was excited because I saw you're on the Ag Committee, and it's, you know, probably surprising to some of our listeners that here you are representing the middle of Silicon Valley, and you're on the Ag Committee. But I smiled because I started on Capitol Hill, and in fact, I'm going to date myself and show how much older I am than you, but I remember being in the House Ag Committee room working on the 96 Farm Bill, pulling all-nighters. And if I look at your bio, I think you were in college at that time. So I'm dating myself. But I grew up in a rural part of Arkansas. And so what you have done since you've been here is fascinating. And I just off the top, I want to know more about your book, why you wrote it, a little bit about it. I want to make sure our listeners understand. Congressman Connor wrote a book called Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. Let's let's hear the backstory here first. Well, thanks, Bobby. I uh, have an amazing district, uh, $11 trillion of market cap uh, in Silicon Valley with Apple, Google, Intel, Yahoo, Cisco, LinkedIn, Tesla. And I saw that young people in my district are very optimistic about America. They think the world is their oyster. But that hasn't been the case for large parts of our country, places where people have seen the deindustrialization of their towns, uh, their kids having to buy one-way tickets out, the closing down of Main Street. 
And so I was thinking about how do we get the technology opportunities that are in my district, the 25 million digital jobs that we're going to have by 2025, into places that have been left out? How do we get them into rural communities, into black and brown communities? One of the reasons I'm on the agriculture committee is that it is all about economic development of rural America. And uh, a lot of the book provides uh, a roadmap for how we can create the decentralization of economic opportunity, the economic empowerment of places left out to participate in the modern economy. Let me ask you this question. In terms of, I mean, all of those companies and that amazing market cap that's in your district, you know, I hear the names and I think, oh, what do they all have in common? Not they're all in Rokana's district. They're all venture-backed companies in the beginning. And so there's a lot of, lot of excitement when we talk about venture-backed companies, although admittedly, we care about them kind of when they're just starting, when nobody knows about them. And once they grow up and on their own, we're, we're not really here to represent them at NVCA. But we are proud of the alumni network of the VC industry. So let's go into the book. I mean, you're talking about how do you make this work for places in rural America do you envision like a whole venture ecosystem with venture capitalists in rural areas supporting entrepreneurs in those rural areas? Or are you talking about already established companies and what they could be doing with folks in rural America? Well, all of the above. First of all, I have great admiration for the role venture capital has played in the growth of uh, the innovation economy. And you're absolutely right. I mean, most of the companies in my district all uh, were backed by venture capitalists at key stages in their career. One of the things that the book says is you can't just replicate Silicon Valley. I mean, there's so many parts of Silicon Valley with Stanford and Berkeley and the university system and certain anchor companies and DARPA investment and, and venture capital that make it uh, unique. But that doesn't mean that you can't create extraordinary technology opportunities across the country. And so what I'm thinking is, first, uh, a lot of the jobs that may not just be for Google or Apple, but also for Fortune 500 jobs in technology can be across the country. If you think that automobile is a computer on wheels, there's no reason that those manufacturing jobs of computers on wheels need to be in Silicon Valley. That tech proficiency can be in Michigan. But beyond that, we do need a dispersion of venture capital investment, uh, as Steve Case obviously famously is doing it and doing it very well. I've now seen with the COVID realignment, a number of venture capitalists who are seeing that there's a great talent across the country. They don't all have to move in into uh, Palo Alto to, to be successful. In fact, a good friend of mine, Ron Conway, I sent him the book and he read it. He said, well, we're already doing all of this. Uh, wh why do you need to, to write about it? So I do think post-COVID, uh, there has been a move to decentralize these investments. And uh, right now, 50% of venture capital is in the Bay Area. But that doesn't necessarily have to be the case as talent is everywhere. Another point that I, I would just make, and I think it complements what you just said about what we've learned from the pandemic and how it is important for there to be an ecosystem in other places to support entrepreneurship. We created Venture Forward, and the whole idea behind Venture Forward as a 501c3 is to democratize access to information, education, we have VC University, an online cohort we developed with our friends up the bay from your district at Berkeley that uh, we have online curriculum, and we're really trying to help people be exposed to the idea of venture capital investing and hopefully encourage them to form capital and support entrepreneurs in, in rural America and other places. What else in your book would our listeners find amazing? 
Well, I think your nonprofit to democratize venture capital is very promising. There are two points I make in the book in some detail. One is to the extent that government wants to have matching funds for venture capital, which I think is a good idea in certain places, it can't be administered by people like me, people in Congress, or people in administrative agencies who are totally disconnected from the actual technology. We need to look at the local venture capital network there, get people without conflicts, and uh, they need to recuse themselves if they have conflicts, but really have local venture capitalists who understand the industry help administer these funds. And so I'm very much into public-private partnerships, but looking at the unique talent that people in venture capital have and not having the arrogance to think someone sitting in Congress for years or sitting in an administrative agency is going to understand the playing field or the latest technologies. The second thing that I discuss in some detail in the book is the importance of public-private collaboration at our land-grant universities. There should be courses, certificates, short of a four-year degree that prepare people for all of these jobs. By the way, they're not going to be high high coding jobs. As you know, the mantra is low code, no code. A lot of these jobs don't require coding anymore, but they may be just understanding basic technology to do sales, to to do data management, to do manufacturing. They could be for a lot of these Fortune 500 companies. And these land-grant universities can be great places of getting those credentials, but they have to be in collaboration with what the local industry needs, what the private sector needs, what venture capitalists know are needed. And the book sort of has a lot of hundreds of these practical suggestions of what we could do to get a goal of 2 million digital jobs in rural America, black and brown communities by 2025. I love it. You don't know this, but in between me working on the Hill and and my off-the-hill career, my, my first job off the Hill was actually at a consulting firm, and we represented the land-grant colleges and universities, so I'm very familiar with that. I also currently serve on the uh, Dean's Executive Advisory Board for the Walton College of Business and have some vantage point to look into what's happening in the middle of the country, particularly Northwest Arkansas. Congressman, you know, when you talk about the public-private partnership, I what comes to my mind is your authorship of the Endless Frontier Act, because that's really at, at the heart of a piece of legislation that we have, you know, vastly supported. We are so excited about the prospects of Endless Frontier Act. I know it's got a gazillion different names by now, but that's what you looked at in that legislation, right? Absolutely. I mean, the Endless Frontiers is very simple. It's about making sure we're investing in the breakthrough technologies of the future, quantum computing, AI, clean technology, semiconductor manufacturing, electronics manufacturing, and it's going to pass. I mean, it's now part of the Competes Act. It is going to be the largest increase in science and technology in this country since the Kennedy years. Many people at NBCA were very helpful in helping uh, Senator Schumer, myself, Gallagher, and Young put it together. An important part of the bill, which is now called the Competes Act, is the commercialization aspect. It's not enough to just do the theoretical science in the United States. We have to have the product development. We're creating a new technology directorate at NSF. And Pancho, I know well, is the leader there. I'm going to have him come out to my district in Silicon Valley to meet with people to say, how can the NSF be part of not just the research, but also the production, commercialization, which is all part of the job creation effort. I think that's so important. And that's a message for so many people, right? I mean, taxpayers on either side of the aisle should be able to get behind the idea that we should be investing in our country. 
This is a competition issue with other countries, and that's on a lot of people's minds these days. But also, and, and this is why we're so excited to support your efforts around Endless Frontier Act, you know, the commercialization, and I think there's a lot of things, you know, you're talking about government, you're talking about private investors and entrepreneurs and stuff, but we also have to kind of have a message to the universities because at the end of the day, research is great, but if it's just a white paper that sits on somebody's shelf, that's not nearly as good as if it turns into a commercial enterprise, creates jobs, and takes that wonderful research into a product or service that benefits society. You're absolutely right, Bobby. I mean, look, we didn't invent in this country the automobile or the jet engine, but we figured out how to mass produce it. That's what made us a superpower. And I love the fact that we have Nobel laureates and we need more Nobel laureates, but that's not sufficient to have significant employment, good jobs, economic productivity. We also need to uh, understand how we produce things, how we commercialize things, how we take things to market. That's the American genius. That's the entrepreneurial spirit. That's the sense of why we've become the power that we are. And what we're saying is the NSF needs to be focused on that and partner with our great entrepreneurs, with our great venture capitalists who can help do that. It's not just that it's more economically productive. It's also that that's what ultimately improves people's lives. It was great that we had the research for mRNA through the NIH and University of Pennsylvania, but that wouldn't have been sufficient. What was equally impressive is the mobilization to get that research into vaccines that within a year after the pandemic could be shots in people's arms. That's equally important, and we have to focus on both the research and the deployment. Well, since you raised mRNA, I've got to do a shout out because Flagship Pioneering is a venture firm, and they, in their firm, created a company called Moderna, which took what you're talking about to the next level and look at how we have all benefited. I actually did an interview with uh, Stefan Boncel, who is the CEO for our audience a year or so ago, and it was amazing. And, and the most important question I wanted to ask him, he had done tons of interviews about the, the vaccine. I wanted to ask him, what's on the drawing board? And I was amazed at all the diseases and the things that they believe that mRNA can actually cure. Can you imagine curing diseases just through the simple technology of running a code in a genome sequence? It is uh, remarkable, and it is what gives, I imagine, so many people in, uh, in your industry, venture capitalists, a sense of fulfillment. I mean, ultimately, we all want to make an impact. We all want to do something with our careers that leaves our communities, our nation, our world a little bit better off than when we started. And you look at the impact that is there in biotechnology, uh, you look at uh, in modern medicine, the, the opportunities in synthetic biology, what's going to be available. These are things that can transform the human experience. And venture capitalists are right at the forefront of it. And look, I know enough venture capitalists what motivates most, of course, people want to make money. I mean, that's uh, as American as anything. But what motivates them is to really have an impact, to, to, to do something that has grand scale, that's going to uh, really impact society. And I think when you look at the life-saving drugs that are being produced and the impact uh, that technology is going to have, especially on climate change, that is really a critical part of any solution. 
Well, I feel like it's sort of preaching to the choir having you and I talk about this stuff, but it, it certainly excites me, and it's great to see a member of Congress. Now, I, I know you have gone around the country, you've spent time, and, and you've gone with people across the aisle. Tell us a little bit about your experience working with your colleagues on the Hill on the other side of the aisle when you go to their districts and, and talk about these issues. I've really enjoyed it. I got to visit Hal Rogers, who represents a Trump district. He's been in Congress decades. I've only been in Congress for four or five years. And he calls that area Silicon Holler. And actually, I start my book with that story that, you know, this is not Silicon Valley out there saying, go become like Silicon Valley. This is Hal Rogers saying, we want the opportunities to bring in revenue that the internet provides. And, you know, the interesting thing, the storyteller of Alex Hughes He's not some coder for Apple or Google or Facebook. He's making refrigerators. He's making dishwashers for General Electric in Louisville. But he realizes that he needs some tech skills because they're now smart appliances. So he says, look, this is something I understand. My family's been making things for generations. I'm just going to make the modern version of that. And this is the same thing you're going to see with Intel going to Ohio. They're making things. These are jobs people get, but they're jobs that are in the 21st century form which require a technology component. So uh, I've worked with Governor DeWine in, in the past, and I think it's so important to cross the aisle. It's no secret I'm you know, a progressive, and uh, I've had uh, spirited email uh, arguments and exchanges with members uh, of NBCA and always valued that perspective. But you know, at the end of the day, what I think is important is that you're willing to engage. You're willing to go to districts different than your own. You're willing to not just attack people who disagree with you, but engage in intellectual argument. That's the marketplace of ideas. That's the hallmark of our democracy. Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you so much for spending time with us today on Venture Capital. It is such a pleasure to have you. It's so refreshing to have a member of Congress that understands our industry and how we can make such a difference. And and the fact that you wrote a book about how it can make a difference in all parts of our country is just music to our ears. Well, I'm honored that I represent a district in an area with so many venture capitalists. I am a technology optimist. I'm an optimist about entrepreneurship. I call myself a progressive capitalist. But I believe that entrepreneurship, innovation, venture capital are going to be part of the solution for progressive ideals. You can't solve climate without the ecosystem of innovation and entrepreneurship. You can't solve cancer, as the president called on us to do, without the ecosystem of entrepreneurship and innovation. You won't solve the opioid crisis without entrepreneurship and innovation. So if you care about progressive ideals, then in my view, you have to be a technology optimist and support the ecosystem that allows human civilization to advance. And that's what venture capitalists at their best do. I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, thank you. And I'll call out the name of your book again, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us by Ro Khanna. Congressman, thank you so much for your time today. It was really an honor. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of Venture Capital. Thanks for listening. But before we gavel out, here's another fun fact. Did you know that President Jimmy Carter loved to watch movies in the White House movie theater? To date, nobody has beaten his record of watching 480 movies in the White House. Now that's a lot of popcorn. Again, thank you for listening to Venture Capital, a podcast brought to you by NVCA. Hope you enjoyed the show because investing in tomorrow starts with smart policies today. 
I'm your host, Bobby Franklin, wishing good days ahead. Bye for now.